You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. If you're keeping score, we are at the halfway point of 2017. That is really, really hard to believe. I don't know if it's just my age or the stage of life that I'm at, but time seems to go much more quickly than it used to. And not just for me. I had a conversation with my son who as many of you know, is in his first job out of college. And he said that his first year of working actually went a lot faster than his previous years of school. So maybe we all have more fun at work and that makes the time fly by. It's also a really good time to check in on those resolutions, those goals that you set for yourself at the start of the year. If you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I don't want to go there, you are not alone. I read somewhere that 80% of all resolutions fail by February. By February. That's incredible. And that's because behavior change, it's really hard. And when most people make resolutions, they are resolving to change something about the way they act on a day-to-day basis, to quit smoking, to eat better in order to drop a few pounds, to exercise more in order to drop a few pounds, to cut their spending in order to get rid of credit card debt. It's all very difficult because we're not wired to do these sorts of things easily or instinctively. And that's what we're going to talk about today, how we can get back on track, how we can make behavior change for good. That is not my phrase. It's Catherine Milkman's phrase. Katie Milkman, as she's called, is an associate professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater, not Wharton, just Penn. She holds a secondary appointment in the med school at Penn, and her research delves into behavioral change and judgment and decision-making. And she uses big data to hone in on the ways that we actually can get ourselves to tweak our behavior a little bit, nudge it into the actions that we want to see ourselves taking. And she is joining us on Skype. Hi, Katie. Hi, how are you doing, Jean? I'm good. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Where are we getting you? My pleasure. I'm I'm in my office at Warden right now. Is that is that the Huntsman Building? I am in the Huntsman Building, right at 38th and Walnut. Yes. Ah, very very nice. So you recently did your very first TED talk. I did. It was a TEDx talk, which is a little lower status than a TED talk, but it was a lot of fun. It was a different kind of speaking engagement. I enjoyed it a lot. And the topic was behavior change for good. So how did it go? Uh, I think it was great. It was really exciting to get to share some of the ideas that have come out of my research over the last decade on how we can make a real impact in people's lives. And I hope the audience 
took away with them a bunch of things they could use immediately to start changing their behavior for better. Tell us a little bit about you and how you got to the point where this was something that you wanted to focus on. I mean, you could have studied a whole host of things and you focused in on helping human beings do something really, really difficult. Well, I, I think there's a lot of reasons that this spoke to me, but one in particular is that uh, it was very personal. So um, growing up, I was a, an only child. I had two amazing parents, uh, really loving family. And when I was 14, my mom uh, got a breast cancer diagnosis and it sort of shook everything in my world. Yeah. Uh, the very core. She was one of the lucky ones who uh, got treatment and was a survivor. She's been cancer free for now 23 years, which is really spectacular. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. But it also made it clear to me that I wanted to do work that could have an impact and that could reduce the number of families that had those kinds of experiences that faced those kinds of odds that were just terrifying that they could be torn apart. And I learned that about 40% of premature deaths are the result of behaviors that can be changed. Many of those are from cancer and they're due to changes we need to make to people's lifestyles. If we can get people to exercise more regularly, eat healthier diets, uh, take their recommended medications, get recommended cancer screenings, then we could save actually 850,000 lives a year in the U.S. alone. And a lot of money while you're at it. I mean, I, I wrote about some of these same things in Age Proof, the book that I wrote with Dr. Mike Roizen of the Cleveland Clinic. And, you know, so many of these chronic diseases end up costing us a whopping amount of money in healthcare dollars each year. And I just like to imagine what would happen if we didn't have to spend the money on healthcare and could instead put it into our 401ks or our 529s or even our health savings accounts. That's absolutely right. There's enormous financial gains if we can uh, crack this nut. And actually, a lot of my work has focused on health, but a lot of it is also focused on uh, savings. It's interesting that the same psychology underlies behavior change when you think about uh, how do we get people to make better financial decisions and how do we get people to make better health decisions? It's really a self-control problem in both cases. And sometimes it's a forgetting problem. I forget because I'm so busy going about my daily life that these things are actually critically important. So forgetting and self-control, when we can crack those nuts, we can make a huge impact on uh, financial outcomes and on health outcomes. In your lecture and in your TED Talk, you talk about one of our favorite people. You talk about Liz Lemon and how she could improve her own behavior. And I think for those people who watch 30 Rock, you know, if Liz Lemon could do this, then anybody could do this. So so take us through your thought process on this. Sure. So Liz Lemon is my ideal character, both because she, we can all relate to her. We all sort of get this this 30-something exec who works too much, exercises too little, and is generally a disaster when it comes to self-control. We get that mentality because she's us. Uh, you know, maybe we don't all have such glamorous jobs working in, um, you know, 30 Rock. Maybe we're doing slightly less exciting things on a, a daily basis and have less exciting characters who, you know, are in our lives. But basically we struggle with the same problem where she sees a bag of Cheetos and she wants to eat them and she doesn't really want to go to the gym at the end of the day and she doesn't want to think about her 401k or saving it all or pay her credit card bills. She just wants to spend. So uh, that paradigm is very useful for reflecting on, okay, then what kinds of solutions would help Liz Lemon? Any solution that would help her would probably help the rest of us too. So um, I talked through a few different solutions that my research has come up with for helping people like Liz Lemon. I'll start you with one of my favorites. Okay. I'm going to start with 
the problem of getting people to exercise more. So imagine that there are two things that are true about Liz Lemon that I find plausible. Imagine that she wishes she exercised more but lacks the willpower. Okay, that's something I think a lot of people can relate to. Exactly. Uh, Imagine she has a second problem, which is that she loves reading trashy novels, but feels guilty wasting her time reading junk. And you can substitute TV shows if that's your poison. Okay. Okay. So we've got these two problems. So I came up with a solution to both of these that I call temptation bundling. And the idea is simple. What if Liz only allowed herself to read trashy novels while exercising at the gym? She'd stop wasting time at home on literary garbage and start craving trips to the gym to find out what happens next in her latest thriller. And not only that, she'll actually enjoy her novel and her workout more combined. She won't feel guilty while she's reading the novel and time will fly while she's at the gym. So that's one nugget for you. And my research has actually tested the efficacy of this strategy of temptation bundling, of combining something that you crave but feel guilty doing with something that you know you should do more of, but it's hard to motivate yourself to actually do. In this case, we literally tried tying exercise and tempting novels. And what we found is that that is a way to increase the good behavior. And not only that, it's something that people value and they'll even pay to have restricted access to tempting things so they can only be engaging in those tempting behaviors while doing something good at the same time. They realize that linking those things will get them to the gym. So in my own life, I can think of two instances where this sort of thing worked really well. So I trained for a marathon, actually, a few years back. And I did it listening to the novels of Daniel Silva, which are amazing, on my long runs, because I really dreaded those long, long runs. But having those fabulous books got me through it. I paid to download the books. But beyond that, there wasn't a very high cost to it at all. And the other thing that we did was... When my son was really young, as new parents, we were very concerned about too much screen time, and he was obsessed with his Game Boy. And so we made the decision to leave the Game Boy in the car, and it got us good behavior in the car and less time with the Game Boy all at once. So, I mean, this sort of a solution, I think, could be applied in so many different ways. That's absolutely right. That's right. And I use it in my own life in many different ways. You can think about, you know, only letting yourself listen to your favorite podcast while you're doing household chores or cooking fresh meals for your family or, you know, enjoy a glass of wine while cooking. Uh, You can imagine only letting yourself, say, get a pedicure while catching up on bill paying or, or some other behavior that you should engage in more regularly, catching up on old emails, but you don't look forward to as much as you look forward to that pedicure. You could imagine only letting yourself go to your favorite restaurant with a difficult relative or a difficult mentee at work. (laughs) That might ruin it. (laughs) That's right. Well, you have to figure out, you know, what are these pairings, these bundles that have complementarities, which means that they're like peanut butter and jelly. They're better together than they are separately. And then those are the ones where you're really gaining something and you want to use temptation bundling. How does it work in the realm of money? Have you found areas that are financially related where temptation bundling works well? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, This is one where I think probably it's going to be a little bit particular to the individual, but you can imagine only letting yourself do some enjoyable activity while actually catching up, say, on bills, right? Like, Hmm. for example... You can only listen to The Grateful Dead while you're catching up on bills. while you're catching up on bills or whatever other financial planning behavior you need to engage in more of. Maybe it's that you have a mint 
account and you sort of dread going and checking and seeing how everything's aligning with your budget, but it's something you need to spend time on each month. Well, you can link it with some enjoyable activity, like, as you said, listening to The Grateful Dead and enjoying a glass of Pinot Noir, whatever it is that uh, is going to be tempting to you and, and make this something you look forward to as opposed to something that you dread. We're going to talk about more of your research and how it applies in our own lives to create behavior change for good. But let me just remind everybody, Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives so that we can do the right things, so that we can make the right decisions again and again and again, so that we can live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. That's where you'll find more conversations like this one with Penn's Katie Milkman. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. So Katie, I know in your other research, you have looked at accomplishing your goals. A lot of people set goals and never, ever get there. And you've looked at ways to help people actually achieve what they set out to do. Can you talk us through some of those? Absolutely. Um, One of the most important things is the most obvious, but we overlook it in spite of how glaringly obvious it is. And that is rather than just setting a goal, you need to make a plan regarding how you're going to get from here to there. So don't just say, I'm going to have $2,000 in my savings account that wasn't there before for an emergency by the end of this year, you have to figure out, well, how are you going to get that $2,000 together? Are you going to make a direct deposit at the end of each month and set that up now where you're taking something out of every paycheck that comes in? Are you going to get another job on the side and put all the money from that second job directly into this new account? You need to make a concrete plan where you think about Uh, exactly what actions you will take to achieve the outcome and you figure out a timeline and you set that all in stone. And that is a key aspect that many of us overlook. We've actually done some very simple research around how important it is for people to make plans to even follow through on a simple one-time behavior like getting a flu shot. So if you send a reminder to someone to get a flu shot and you tell them when they can get a flu shot and uh, where they can get a flu shot and in fact that it's free, it's actually much more effective, that reminder, if you embed a simple prompt asking people to write down the date and time when they intend to get the flu shot, because simply forcing them to think through that extra layer of the plan increases follow through significantly by reducing forgetting and ensuring that people actually have that if then plan figured out so that when the time comes, they have a cue and they know, hey, it's noon. This is when I said I was going to get my flu shot. So this is really important to following through on goals. I was really struck by your finding that having a backup plan can be a bad thing, make it less likely that we achieve our goals. Can you explain why that is? Yeah, absolutely. This is actually work uh, that was led by a wonderful former doctoral student at Wharton G. Shin, who's now a professor at the University of Wisconsin. And she came to me when she was on the job market. She just finished her doctorate and she was looking for an academic position. And she said, I have an idea. I think that um, thinking through what will happen if I don't get an academic job, sort of thinking through and figuring out for myself, oh, I can go into industry, I could probably get a job at Google, or maybe I, you know, go work 
on Wall Street with this PhD from Wharton. I think that the more I think about that, the more harmful it's going to be to my outcomes because it's going to reduce my motivation to put everything I've got into getting an academic job, to spend that extra hour staying up late and practicing my job talk, which is something you do when you try to get an academic job. You give a talk about your research and it needs to be really excellent. She thought, hey, it's actually going to be harmful. And so she and I spent some time designing a series of studies to prove that this was the case, that just thinking through a backup plan in case you're primary goal, if you're not successful, to figure out what you'll do can actually harm primary goal achievement because it reduces motivation to pursue your primary goal. And that's exactly what we found across a series of studies. So square that for me. And I get why this is true in my head. I get why this is true. But as a personal finance geek, I spend a lot of my time telling people, you must have an emergency cushion. You must have an emergency cushion, which is essentially a financial backup plan, right? And I know encouraging people to divert some money that they could be throwing against their big goal into an emergency savings account just in case does lessen the chance that they'll get to that big goal as quickly, but I still find it really, really necessary. I absolutely agree. So I actually think that it would be a very dangerous way to interpret our research if you were to say, you know, don't buy insurance and don't have an emergency savings account uh, because it's going to reduce the likelihood that you achieve your primary objectives or it's going to increase the likelihood that you need to rely on those emergency reserves. What we're pointing out is simply a missing observation in the research on goals, which is that when we think about what happens if we fail at our primary plan and and dwell on that, it actually has a downside of reducing motivation. That is not to say that that downside is in any way uh, large enough to say you shouldn't buy insurance, you shouldn't have an emergency savings. The, The downside of not having an emergency savings account in case you end up in financial trouble, right, or distress, you have an unexpected medical bill, you have an unexpected household disaster, right, you have to be ready for that. And so the fact that you're a little bit less motivated to achieve your primary goal is not sufficient reason to go and throw away your emergency reserve plans or not buy life insurance or not buy health insurance, right? You need to do those things. This is just pointing out that there is some downside to spending a lot of time dwelling on what if I fail. And I think also the the key implication is we focus on the downsides of thinking through Mm -hmm. these backup plans and dwelling on them cognitively, which is distinct from having the funds you need set aside or the insurance that you need set aside. So I really want to be very careful about the prescriptions we're giving the world regarding this research. I think it's an important point to recognize that if you're spending 50% of your day or, you know, even 20% of your day dwelling on what you do if primary goal doesn't work out, you may be demotivating yourself and reducing your chances. That's very distinct from saying don't have emergency reserves, don't have an insurance plan. Well, in my next life, I am going to do what you do because I think it's just so fascinating. But as we leave you today, top three takeaways for somebody who wants to make behavior change for good in their own life. Have a goal. Make a plan to help you follow through on that goal. Find a way to make it fun to do the thing that you should be doing. So build fun into your plans. Temptation bundling is a way to do that. Katie Milkman, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And we will be right back with Kelly and your questions. (laughs) 
I was serious about that, by the way. I think in my next life, I'm going to be an academic like my father, and I'm going to study behavioral finance. You kind of already do. I know, and I don't have to take tests, right. which is the right. best. No, I is th- the best. I think you have the opportunity to be it. You are it in this lifetime. Well, I don't know. I sometimes wonder, and I was glad that she talked about the graduate student who came in and had this question and they designed the experiment, because I sometimes wonder, like, how do you design these sorts of experiments? How do you figure out what will best test your hypotheses? Because often the way they test these things is really wacky, you Mm -hmm. know, kind of out there because they have to isolate all the different variables. Right. And then also, how do you know in advance what will be accepted? Because don't they have to get it peer reviewed before it actually gets published too? Oh, they they have to go through a whole whole bunch of things. Whole bunch of things before it gets in any sort of journal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Absolutely. There we go. Anyway, Kelly has joined me as you can tell in the studio. Hello. You're looking bright and cheerful. Thank you. And it's summery. It's summer. I know. Yeah. I'm finally dressing the part. We can finally dress the part. There you go. What do we have? Our first question is an email from Lisa. She has a priorities-related question on savings versus credit card debt. Okay. She writes, I have almost six months of my salary in a savings account. However, I have credit card debt that equals a sixth of the total saved. Should I pay off my debt or continue to save and pay more than the monthly amount due until the debt is paid off? Wait, the credit card debt equals one-sixth of the amount saved? Correct. Just pay off the debt. Mm-hmm. Just pay off the this debt. This reminded me of your story. Yeah. Well, uh, my story was I had a savings account, but I had some high interest rate credit card debt, and I felt safer keeping the money in the bank. And mm-hmm. so I was letting it sit there, earn very, very little interest while I was paying interest at a very high double-digit rate on my credit cards, psychologically, we tend to hang on to savings. We become hoarders where our savings are concerned. We don't want to let go of them because they have a very specific purpose, which is to bail us out if we lose a job, if we get injured, if we have an emergency. But in this case, you're you're flush with savings. Just write one big fat check and get rid of the credit card debt. And if you want to replenish the emergency cushion, great mm-hmm. to have the full six months. But if you're not already maxing out your retirement plan contributions, I wouldn't even worry about replenishing that one-sixth of your savings. I'd turn and I'd focus right on those long-term goals. Because it's so low. I think it's safe to do, but I'm wondering for the people who have higher amounts of credit card debt, so their their debt to savings mm-hmm. ratio is not as good as hers. What's the threshold for you then that you would say, you know what, nope, stay on course of like only putting a fraction of the money you have towards your debt or your repayment plan? Once you've got a couple thousand dollars that can get you out of a jam, I mean, a couple thousand dollars is not going to tide you over if you lose a job, but it will pay a lot of medical bills. It will fix a lot of car repairs. It will deal with the fact that you've got a small infestation at home. I mean, it will it will handle many, <laughs> right. many things. So once you've got that, then I would turn to the credit card debt with full force. Mm-hmm. Until you've got that, I'd split the difference and do half and half. Thanks, Lisa. Our next question is from Alexandra, who has a question for her husband. He had a job about 10 years ago that opened a 403B account for him. He now has about 2600 in it. He's currently a grad student, so no 401k, and she doesn't have one either, but they both have Roth IRAs. So she's wondering if he should move this money into his Roth IRA, close his 403B, and possibly lower some fees this way, or should he just leave it? 
It's such a relatively small sum of money. I would probably, for administrative ease, just roll it into an account, and a rollover IRA, where he has his Roth. Okay. And does it matter if the accounts are different or from different financial institutions? No, you can roll them into one. It doesn't matter? No, it shouldn't matter at all. Excellent. And thank you, Alexander, for that question. Our next is a tweet from Kim Shakui. She tweets, thoughts on youth sports versus putting that money in college funds. My DD asked for $600 a month for a 10-month dance program. $600 a month for dance. That is a lot. I would look around and see if there are ways to reduce that expenditure. I don't know how old your daughter is, Mm -hmm. but with an expenditure this high, you can ask her to contribute if she's in her teenage years. You can ask her to do some babysitting to help defray some of the cost. It'll make her appreciate it more. It'll make her think twice about waking up on a weekend morning and deciding that she really doesn't feel like going. You should talk to the school and see if there are any sorts of plans that offer discounts. But you're right. It is a tremendous amount of money. If you could be putting some of that away for college, Mm -hmm. I would think twice about doing it. And I would also talk to your daughter about the cost of college. This gives you an open door to say, let's talk about the future. Let's talk about what it's going to cost. Let's talk about what I will be able to pay for, what you will be likely to borrow, what sort of schools might have the kinds of programs that we could pay for without borrowing, all those sorts of things. I mean, she's given you actually a very nice opening to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. So by all means, have it. And she may turn around and say, wow, I didn't realize that was the choice we're making. Maybe I can dance a little less often. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you, Jean. Thanks, Kelly. As we're talking about things on the home front, let's turn a corner and talk about things in our homes. And you can guess for me, Kelly, how many things, items, do you think that you have in your apartment? I would say, ooh, probably. And you're counting, count like... Spoons. Spoons. You know, items. Still, I live in a little larger shoebox than I lived in when I first moved here, so I'm going to say 500 to 800 items. So in the average home, according to a professional organizer, 300,000 items. Now, I, I don't know. I mean, they must be counting toothpicks, seriously, (laughs) or strands of spaghetti. Right, Right, in in the box, yeah. But maybe not. Maybe we would all be surprised. You know, maybe they're counting each individual card in a deck. I don't know. I think we would all be surprised at how many items we have. And, you know, we can thank, we often talk about our Mm hunter-gatherer ancestors. They had this impulse to acquire things. We have this impulse to acquire things. But in a recent series that I did for the Today Show, I talked about how much free money you can find by unloading some of that stuff that you're not using. And I thought I would just run through some of these services for people. So if you're selling anything that is unusual, that is a little bit quirky, you want to try a site called Bonanza, 
it's kind of the new eBay or Amazon. You'll find rocks and fossils and platinum Elvis records. And sellers love it because the ratio of people shopping to the ratio of people selling is very, very high. If you're selling things in your local area and you don't want to just have a tag sale, there are apps that you can put on your phone. Let Go is one. Offer Up is another. Close Five is a third. And then Facebook Marketplace, which I've got to acknowledge I use all the time. More than 450 million people buy and sell on Facebook every single month. Astonishing. If you've got anything in your closet that you're looking to get rid of, there are a bunch of relatively new online consignment stores, The Real Real, Thread Up, Poshmark. The Real Real is more luxury. The other two are a little more mainstream. I love the ease of Thread Up. You just order a consignment kit. It's actually a big bag. You mm -hmm. put all your stuff in it. You send it off. And they take the photos and load it up on their website. Now, note, they're very upfront about the fact that they only really sell about 50% of the stuff that they get. The rest they decide isn't good enough, and they give it to charity. And on lower-priced items, they keep the bulk of the money because they're doing all of the work. But on higher-priced items, you can make a decent chunk of change. And finally, for old technology, you can head to Amazon or Apple, Best Buy, GameStop. They all have trade-in or trade-up programs. But if you want to sell independently, you can look at Declutter, YouSell, Gazelle, Nextworth, and Swappa. And because I know that I just listed a lot of places, rapid fire, some of you are listening while you're running, some of you are listening while you're in the car, just email us if you want the list of these places the same way that you did for the autofill instructions, and Kelly will send you the list. Thanks so much to all of you for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Katie Milkman for a great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes and leave us a review. Please also take our listenership survey. We're trying to learn a little bit more about you so that we can bring you a better show. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next week when Bobby Brown of Bobby Brown Cosmetics will be with us. She's got a new book out called Beauty from the Inside Out. And we are really looking forward to that conversation. We'll talk soon. 